This morning we begin together a new series we're calling Story of God. For the next six weeks we're going to dive into the scriptures together and we're going to look at the, at the Bible as, as the grand sweeping epic narrative that it is. From Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, all of scripture in six parts or six acts. So as a church, and we've already, we've been talking about this in our Bible classes, I've mentioned it already in here this morning, we're moving away from viewing the Bible primarily as a collection of God's rules and laws and commands, and more toward looking at the Bible as the story of who God is and what he's doing in this world through Jesus Christ. The Bible is a story. And we believe it should be read and interpreted and applied as the story it is. Now, that's not to say there aren't laws and commands and rules in the Bible. There most certainly are. But we believe those rules and laws and commands should be understood in the context of the story. God reveals himself to us in history through incarnation and gospel and miracles and relationship and promise. You know, if God wanted to, he could have given us a systematic theology. God very easily could have laid out all the rules and all the bullet points and, and the pattern of what he's doing and why and how he wants us to respond as his people. He could have given us a constitution if he wanted to. But instead, God reveals the truth of himself to us in a story. He gives us poetry and prose and songs and parables. And all of it is in a narrative form. It's a story. Colossians chapter 1 says, we're, we're praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. We've talked about knowledge the last several weeks. When the Bible talks about knowledge, biblical knowledge, scriptural knowledge is, is not knowledge about information. It's not, I need to know all the kings in order, and, and here's the commandments, and here's the Beatitudes. That's not knowledge according to the Bible. According to the scriptures, holy knowledge is knowing who God is and what God is doing in the world. And that kind of knowledge, according to the Bible, leads to relationship and transformation and mission. But a lot of us were raised to read the Bible for information. And so we study the words and we study the language behind the words and we consult all of our resources and sources for understanding the historical context. And some of us sometimes we'll dive into just a fragment of a sentence and we won't come up for air until we've discerned exactly what color the ink was that Luke was using when he wrote Acts. And so... When we're doing it that way, I, I think that actually can become a barrier to transformation and relationship and mission. And so I think understanding the Bible first as the story of God is going to help us in these areas. That's my prayer. 
Now, let me, let me give you this disclaimer right at the start. I don't believe that making this shift is going to suddenly give us all the super easy answers to all the complex issues. I don't believe that at all. In fact, I think as we dive into the Bible as the story of God, we're going to find out there are fewer rules and the lines are not as black and white. I mean, I think this is going to lead to more wrestling and more questions and more opportunities for reflection. This is not a system, okay? This is not an owner's manual. This is more art than science. Um, I think it's kind of like finger painting. You know what I'm talking about? Finger painting is kind of messy. And we don't want to always live with finger painting. Finger painting is okay for the kids, you know, every now and then. And sometimes maybe we'll save one of the finger paintings and we'll put it on the front of the refrigerator for a couple of months. But nobody wants to finger paint their whole house, right? Not every wall. But what if the value or the worth of seeing the Bible as a story isn't in answering all the questions or solving all the issues? What if it's more about relationship? and transformation, and mission. So let me say three things about this more narrative view of the Bible, and then we'll look at the story, the story of God, okay? The first thing I want us to notice is that viewing the Bible as the story of God will help us connect. There's this, uh, there's this card game called Taboo. If y'all ever played Taboo, you know about Taboo. So you get this card and it's got a word on the card. And the object is you've got to try to get the people on your team to say the word that's on the card. The trick is there are five other words on the card you're not allowed to say. And of course, those five words are the very words you need to say in order to get your teammates to say the word that's on the card. You know what I'm talking about? That game and a lot of others like it prove what all of us already know. If you've got relationship with somebody on your team, if your group has shared experiences and, uh, and shared relationships in common, you're going to have better luck at that game. Because if the word on the, on the card is keys, a husband can look at his wife and say, what'd you lose this morning? And she'll say, keys, right? It's a shared thing. Now, if I just met you, we would have a harder time coming up with that word. It would take us a little longer, right? But if I've been living with Carrie Ann every single day for 33 years, this was a hypothetical and it just turned into a real thing. I'm sorry. We have these shared experiences. We have these common touch points. We have uh, a common language and, and things that we've shared. And so it's easier for us to relate and to communicate. And I think if we will look at the Bible as the story of God, I think that's the best way to get all of us on the same page. We connect with one another through our stories. If we're in a room full of strangers and we're trying to get to know each other, we'll tell stories about our hometown, about our first job. We're, we're trying to find things we have in common around which to build a relationship. If I meet you and you tell me you were born in Clovis and I say, oh, well, I've got an aunt who lives in Clovis. Do you know Pam McLaughlin? I mean, that's, that's kind of how we do things. That's how we connect. And our Lord Jesus does it the same way. In Luke chapter 24, on, on Resurrection Day, Jesus finds these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and his wife, I think. 
and they just haven't made all the connections yet. They, they know the story. They just haven't connected all the dots. And so Jesus helps them by telling the story. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus is the one who connects all the dots in the story of God. That's what he told the religious leaders in John chapter 5. He says, the scriptures all point to me. The story of God is about me. You know, in Exodus 24, you've got Moses and the priest representing the people of God, and they're up on the mountain with God in his presence. The scripture says they saw God. It says it twice because it's hard to believe. They saw God, and they ate and drank supper with God. How are they able to do that? Because they were washed in the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Moses says that in Exodus 24. He says, this is the blood of the covenant. Well, we know that when Jesus is eating dinner with his followers on that last night, what does he say? This is my blood of the covenant. He's quoting Moses from Exodus 24. We know from the story that God delivered his people when they sacrificed a lamb on Passover evening. And we know that the gospels refer to Jesus as the lamb of God. And he was sacrificed for our deliverance on Passover weekend. Now think about the way the gospel of John takes the beautiful language of creation from Genesis 1 and 2. And he takes the spectacular imagery of the new creation in Revelation 21 and 22. And he ties it all together with Jesus right at the center. He was with God in the beginning. He is the light that shines into the darkness and brings order and salvation to our darkness and chaos. You know, the story says when you pass through the waters, everything changes. When you pass through the waters of the Red Sea, God changes his people from slavery into an existence of freedom. When you pass through the waters of the Jordan River, God moves his people from wandering in the wilderness to settling with him in the promised land. When God takes you through the waters of baptism, God moves you from death to eternal life. See how Jesus connects the dots in the story of God. The story of God gives us a common language and it gives us those common touch points and experiences to connect us not only to the Lord, but also to one another. Secondly, reading the Bible as the story of God, I think, will help us identify. Understanding the Bible as the narrative that it is makes it easier for us to see ourselves in the story. And to place ourselves in the plot and to play our part and to say our lines. You know, 12 generations after they crossed the Red Sea, God's people in the Bible are still saying, Lord, you brought us through the Red Sea. God, you are the one who destroyed Pharaoh and brought us through the sea. And you're like, no, no, wait a second. That was your grandparents and your great-great-grandparents. That wasn't you. And God's people say, oh, no, this is our story. This is us. When God's people cross over the Jordan, centuries later, that's us. God, you did this for us. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is confessing the sins of his fathers and grandfathers who had committed those sins decades before he was born. God, we have done wickedness in your sight. Lord, we have rebelled against you. We have not stood with you. Daniel, no, that's not you. Yes, it is. This is my story. 
That's what Daniel would say. This is me. That's what the Bible does. The Bible invites you into the story. It puts you in the story of God. I think about 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 13. We, we read this when we were talking about knowledge a few weeks ago. I thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you. He chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through the gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The way you see the world, the way you see people, the way you react and respond to the things that are happening around you, that all depends on the story you're living. The goal that you see, the role that you play, all of that impacts how you watch the game. You can go to a high school football game this Friday night and sit by five different people on the same bleacher and you'll get five different views about what is happening on the field and what should be happening on the field, depending on the people you're sitting with and how they see their story they're living and how they see their goals and their roles, right? So if, the, if you're sitting by the opposing team's scout from next week and he's watching the game, he might be thinking, we got to play a zone next week because that team's really fast. And if you're sitting by a guy who's on the board of directors who owns the stadium, he's watching the game going, there's 7,000 people here. Tickets are $10 a piece. Nachos are six bucks and a Coke is three. We got to figure out how to host a playoff game when this season's over. Right? You see what I'm saying? The running back's mother who loves her son dearly. He's saying, don't give him the ball. I don't want him to get hurt. The running back's father, who wants a Division I scholarship, is like, give my son the ball or we're going to wind up at Texas A&M Commerce, you know? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That running back's English teacher is like, I don't understand how he can memorize an 85-page playbook but forgets to turn in his essay, you know? It depends on the story you're in and the role that you're playing and the goal that you think is out there as to how you respond and how you watch the game. Your identity is forged by the story you're living. And I'm telling you, God's story is our story. Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And the Bible reminds us over and over again, you're not foreigners. You're not aliens. You're fellow citizens with God's people. You have a home. You belong in the household of God. First Peter chapter 2 I can't read this enough. You are a chosen people. We need to be reminded of that. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? For yourselves? No, for the sake of the world. You've been called by God and placed in this holy people so you can declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light. One time you weren't a people. Now you are the people of God. So what is God doing in the world? Where is all this headed and where are we? Where am I in this story? Well, you're the light of the world. You bear the image of God. You're ambassadors for Christ. You know, a system of commands and laws compels us to obey and comply. But a story? 
That invites us into relationship and mission. And understanding the Bible as the story of God, I think, will also help us to more accurately interpret. Hopefully, you read this in your Bible class this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, right at the end of the chapter. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the child of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Listen, a lot of us have taken a passage like this, and there's several of them. We've taken these passages, and we've developed a theology about the Bible, and we haven't really paid attention to a biblical theology. You know what I mean? We'll read the story of Jonah and we'll spend three weeks in a Bible class trying to determine if a man really can live inside of a fish for three days and we won't give one thought to what God's doing in this story. The story of Jonah is about God and what God is doing. It has nothing to do with what a fish can or cannot do. It's about the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God. We'll argue about Paul's words concerning divorce and remarriage, and we're always looking for these legal loopholes, and we're looking for a template to place on everybody's marriage, and we don't think about the love and the loyalty of our God who designed marriage to faithfully witness to his love and faithfulness to his people. We miss the story. I think about the story of Esther. Esther is not about, you need to be more courageous. That's not what Esther is about. If that's the whole point of Esther, then it also should be about you need to be prettier too. That's not the point. The point of Esther is that our God is at work to redeem everything and everybody, and he will work in every opportunity to do it. Even in our darkest moments when we're in exile and we feel trapped and helpless in circumstances that are beyond our control, God is at work to save us and redeem us. The story of Esther is telling us, you're not forgotten. You are not out of God's reach. You're not so far gone that he won't save you. Church, that's the story. And I know for a long time in churches of Christ, and this is the way I was raised, we read the Bible and we're looking for commands and examples and necessary inferences. And I don't think anybody really assumes that that's the, the best way to do it anymore. I don't think anybody really assumes that that's the most consistent way to read the Bible, or even if it's a healthy way at all. I mean, I don't think anybody really believes that in the grand sweeping epic of God's holy scriptures, that somehow the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu belongs in a central, you know, primary spot. I don't think we really believe that anymore. But what do we believe? about the Bible. How do we read it? How do we interpret these scriptures? Reading the Bible as a book of laws to be obeyed or as a constitution to be defended is what led to lots of Christians affirming that slavery is okay. Think about that. We read it as a, as a book of laws or a book of commands. If that's the way we read the Bible, and some have, and some people have taken every single verse that mentions slavery. And they've noticed that the Bible does not strictly or expressly condemn slavery. The Bible doesn't say slavery is a sin. 
And so what some people have concluded with this lens of the Bible as a book of commands and laws or as a constitution, they've surmised that, well, slavery must be okay as long as you don't violate your conscience. But when you read the Bible as the story of God, we see that what, what, if we read it and we're, we're looking at the story of God as who God is and what God is doing through Jesus Christ, we see very clearly that all women and men are created in the image of God. And we're all equals in God's sight. And we all belong to each other in Jesus Christ. We know this because in Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, right? We are all one in Christ Jesus. And so we know that slavery belongs in the fall. It's a sin. It's a reprehensible sin. How do we know that? Not because the Bible says it, but because the story of God tells us that, that we're all one in Christ. That's the difference. What's the story? The Beatitudes, right? I don't think the Beatitudes are in the Bible to tell us, well, you've got to be better at all these virtues so you can have the promises that are connected with them. I don't think that's what the Beatitudes are about. But if you read it as a book of laws and commands and rules, then the Beatitudes become, well, you've got to mourn. You've got to be a weeper. You've got to be a crier. Why do we try to make mourning and weeping into something good? Mourning and weeping is not good, right? We know this. Well, it's, it's about mourning about sin. It's about weeping over the sin in the world. I don't know, is it? That's not what the text says. If it said that, that'd be a lot easier. See, I think we miss the point until we look at it as the story of God. The point of the Beatitudes is to express how radically present the kingdom of God is. Even and especially among those who are grieving. You know, people who are grieving, sometimes they feel like they've been left out of God's blessings. And the Beatitudes are reminding us, Jesus is saying, I'm right here. The kingdom of God is right here. Even in your grieving, I'm right here. And the kingdom is near. And it's bigger and better than anybody ever imagined. That's what the Beatitudes are about. And that's what God is doing. It's a story. It's a narrative. And so hopefully you did this in your Bible classes this morning. But this, this is how we're going to look at the Bible, okay? Act 1 is creation. The Bible begins, the story begins, Genesis 1 and 2, with this wonderfully good news. In the beginning, our Lord God has voluntarily and peacefully and lovingly created the heavens and the earth. And so we live in the face-to-face -face presence of the Almighty God, and we're in perfect peace with Him and with each other and with all of creation. Everything is perfect. Because that's the way God designed it. It's the way he made it. Except we know it didn't last. We know not everything stayed perfect because we all watch TV and we all have iPhones, right? Act two is the crash. Theologians call it the fall. Genesis 3 through 11. I'm a preacher. I'm addicted to alliteration. I thought about calling it catastrophe, but that's harder to spell. So I am just going with crash. Genesis 3 through 11, we rebelled against God. And now sin and death have corrupted all of creation. We're disconnected from God. We're estranged from one another. We're, we're hostile to nature. And so we're lost. We're doomed to die. And then act 3, Genesis 12, the covenant. 
God declares he's going to bless all the people of the world through a nation born out of Abraham and eventually Abraham's perfect descendant, Jesus the Messiah. And God makes a covenant with his people on Mount Sinai and he leads his people to the promised land. Again, not for their sakes, but for the sake of the whole world. But Israel fails to be the light. All through the rest of the Old Testament, they're up and down, they're obedient, they're rebellious, they're, they're undependable. It's not really working in the Old Testament. And so here comes Act 4, Jesus Christ. The Gospels begin with another powerful declaration of good news. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. And now God is coming true on his promise to make his dwelling place with us. He's actually living with us in flesh and blood on the earth. And Jesus Christ preaches one sermon. The kingdom of God is here. I'm here. I am present with you. The kingdom of God is now a present kingdom on this earth. And through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus completely fulfills every part of God's covenant. And then comes Act 5, the church. The resurrected Lord creates a brand new community of faith by his power and presence through the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Talk about Emmanuel. It's not just God with us anymore. Now it's God in us. You don't get any closer to God than this. And these people who are baptized into Christ, they are restored to a righteous relationship with the Creator, and they are commissioned by Him to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. This is us. This is where we are today. This, this is who we are. This act is not finished yet. We're still living in Act 5. We're living it right now. And we know how the story ends. Act 6. Revelation 21 and 22, new creation. The script's already been written. You can read it right now. We know how the story ends. It just hasn't happened yet. Heaven and earth are going to be perfectly united as one on this planet. The entire creation is going to experience an eternal resurrection, including us. The curse will be reversed. Sin and death will be no more. Heaven is coming, and someday we are all going to live again and forever in the face-to-face -face presence of God. Amen. Amen. That's the story. That's the story of God. And this is what we're going to be unpacking together in our Bible classes and in our sermons over the next six weeks. And I think, church, I think this is going to be so good for us. I think it's really going to open up the Bible for us. I think it's really going to connect a lot of dots for us. And I would say this would be a good thing to invite your friends to. This is something you can talk about at lunch. You're going to see yourself all over the Scriptures. I think it's going to be refreshing for us. I think it's going to be encouraging for you. And I think it's going to be transforming. So let me show you one last thing real quick. And you already know this. But I want us to look at it together real quick. Exodus 14. In Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites are fleeing Egypt. And on the third day, they're dead. You've got the sea on one side, the desert mountains on the other. You've got the most powerful army on the planet thundering over the sand ridges to get to them. They're, they're, they're cornered. They're trapped. They're dead. 
this ragtag group of slaves against the charging forces of the most powerful military machine on earth. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing from it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their left and on their right. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him. Brothers and sisters, this God who saves is our God. He is our God. And this is our story. This foundational miracle of salvation in Act 3, Part 3 of the story, this informs us and it shapes us to this day. Almost every writer of the Bible at some point goes back to this story to inspire a renewed hope that God will save us too. Our God is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Our God is the God who delivers us through the sea. And when the Bible gets to the crossing of the Jordan River into the promised land, it's this same language. And when the Bible gets to exile and God promises to bring them back to the land, it's this exact same imagery. Our God rescues his people from bondage so they can bless the whole world. God saves us for his mission. This God is our God. This God of, of mighty miracles and marvelous works. This God who parts the waters of the Red Sea and crumbles the thick walls of Jericho and rolls the stone away from the garden tomb. Listen, our God is the God who shines his light into the darkness of this world and brings eternal life out of certain death. Church, this is our God. Amen. <laughs> you almost sounded like you believed it. Listen, the Israelites, they saw the dead Egyptians on the shore. Did you, did you catch that? They saw the dead Egyptians. They had proof that their enemies were eternally destroyed and powerless to ever do them any more harm. And so the, Egyptian, uh, the Israelites saw it. Our rescue is complete. Our enemies are dead. 
and our God has saved us. And when they realized it and when they experienced this great salvation of the Lord, they put their trust in him. They swear their allegiance to him. This is our story too. This is us. We, we are in this story. And the point of the Exodus story, hear me on this, it's not verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. We're going to miss the whole point of this grand theological message if we boil it down to some moral lesson like, hey, when you get in a tight spot, just hang, hang loose. God will take care of you. That's not the point here. It's, it's so much bigger than that. The story of the crossing of the Red Sea, church, it's not to tell us what to do, okay? It's to tell us how to think. It's to tell us how to see the world and how to understand God and what he's doing in the world. This is not a pep talk, okay? This is supposed to shape your world view. This is God moving his people from one kind of existence to another. And you understand this better when you hear Jesus say in John chapter 5, I'm telling you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. When you go through the waters of salvation... You leave all your old stories behind. You see the dead Egyptians on the shore. All those enemies of death and sin and pain and sickness and separation. They are eternally destroyed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they cannot ever do you any more harm. 1 Corinthians 6 says, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. That's the good news. That's the story. From start to finish, that's what God is doing. And we know the story. The love and the power of God to save millions of Israelites from Egyptian bondage. And the same power and love of our God to save you and to save me and to save us and to save everybody in the whole world. Listen, church, this thing's going somewhere, all right? This story, it's not over. We know the end. It's coming, but it's not over yet. And listen, you're in the story, okay? You are. You are in the story. You're a part of it. You matter to the story. The story is big enough. It's sweeping enough. It's eternal enough. But it's also so intimate to include you. It's both, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But that son who came to save the world also knows you by name. At the garden tomb, Mary. Mary. Right? On the boat, on the Sea of Galilee, Simon, son of Jonah. It's that big, but you matter to it, and you're in it. The story of God. I can't wait to dive into this thing together next week and for the next six weeks. Would y'all stand with me, church? I want to lead us in a prayer.
Father, thank you so much for the story that has been so faithfully handed down to us by your children, by, by your faithful servants, by men and women who have experienced your salvation, God. They have passed the faith to us, and we are so thankful. Our hearts overflow with joy, knowing that your love and your mercy and your compassion and your forgiveness and your grace have existed from eternity past and will exist for eternity future, and that, God, we're right in the middle of it with your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, over the next six weeks, would you help us as a as a community of faith, God, would you help us by the power of your Spirit to identify where we are in this story, to live it, to experience it? Um, Father, some of us, we're, um, we're still living in Act 2. We're, we're living in our sins. Some of us haven't experienced the, the, the covenant. We haven't accepted the covenant. Some of us, Father, things are going really well for us right now. We're, we're in Act 1. We, we, we've had some new beginning, or we've just had some really uh, blessed life. And, uh, Father, some of us are, we're in Act 4. And we're, we're, we're living in, in you. We're living in Christ. Some of us are in Act 5, Father, and we're on fire for the mission, and we're proclaiming the kingdom of God. But all of us, Father, we're all looking forward to your son's return. We're looking forward to the heavens and earth being made one. And, Father, we're looking forward to the day your son fixes everything that's broken and makes right everything that's gone wrong. Thank you for including us in your story. We love you, and we praise you. We give you all glory and honor forever and ever in the name of our risen and coming Lord Jesus. And all of God's people say together, amen.